Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to invite all of you to an event that I'm super excited about and that's been a long time in the making. One of the projects that's kept me busy over the last few months is a new platform for knowledge sharing and connection between regenerative farmers, their communities, and their clients called Climate Farmers. Now, Climate Farmers is a European movement for a systemic change in agriculture towards regenerative practices that promote climate and ecosystem protection, access to food of the highest quality, epic flavor, and maximum nutrient density without chemicals or harmful substances. This not only promotes biodiversity, but also ensures long-term food security in times of changing climate. We're creating the infrastructure for the large-scale and rapid transition needed to ensure that farming practices are ready for the future. The best part is that I'll be hosting a panel discussion between four of the most prominent figures in regenerative agriculture, and you can be there live! Join us at 4 p.m. Central European Time this upcoming Monday, the 30th of November, to hear from Richard Perkins, John Kemp, Patrick Worms, and Benedict Bozel about their perspectives on the current state of agriculture, the changes that need to happen for a regenerative transition, and the steps to get us there. There are a limited number of free registrations for this event, so don't wait to sign up. Follow the registration link on the show notes for this episode to reserve your space today. I'm looking forward to seeing you there. All right, friends and family, welcome back. Now, after last week's session with Matt Powers, I wanted to add a second perspective on soil and the new science behind how we can restore it to health in our own gardens. And so for that perspective, I got back in touch with Robert Pavlis, who was first on this show a few seasons ago to talk about building natural ponds. Now, Robert has been an avid gardener for over four decades. He's the owner and developer of Aspen Grove Gardens, a six-acre botanical garden that features over 3,000 varieties of plants. As a specialist in soil science, he's been the instructor for Landscape Ontario and is a garden blogger, writer, and chemist. He teaches gardening fundamentals at the University of Guelph and garden design in the city of Guelph, Ontario, where he lives. One of the things that I most appreciate about Robert's work is that he's not afraid to challenge any entrenched gardening belief or myth. He's always looking to get at the bottom of what helps plants to grow and what's just marketing scams. In this episode, we really dive in deep to the fundamentals of soil composition and understanding the nutrients that plants need to thrive. We talk about looking at soil as an ecosystem unto itself rather than a living material, and why striving for ideal soil is not as important as making sure that you have the components necessary for the life inside of it. Robert also helps me to understand what happens in the ground after tillage and mulching and other amendments. And we go over simple tests that you can do to diagnose your soil without special equipment or needing to pay for laboratory testing. And by the end, how you can use these results to make your own personalized soil plan. Now this episode alone is like a short but thorough course on soil health, so you might want to keep a notebook handy. And for those of you who want to really expand your knowledge on soil science, I've teamed up with New Society Publishers to give away a free copy of this book. If you want to win a copy of Soil Science for Gardeners, just message me through our dedicated Facebook group called Abundant Edge Weekly Regenerative Skills, 
and write a post about why you want to amend the soil on your site. I'll select a winner one week after this episode comes out and send a hard copy of the book if you live in the United States or Canada, or a digital copy if you live anywhere else in the world. It's that simple. Plus, you'll be joining an incredible group of listeners like you who are sharing their regenerative living journey and learning experiences with the community. You can either look for the group directly on Facebook, or I'll put a button to take you right there in the show notes for this episode. So with that out of the way, and a lot of ground to cover, I'll hand it over to Robert. Hey, Robert, thanks for taking the time to be on the podcast again. How have you been? Oh, I've been really great and busy. (laughs) Sounds like it. You've got a new book coming out. You've been keeping up with the blog. You've got all sorts of things going on. Um, So look, we did the the last interview about your book on building natural ponds, which was great. It was actually one of my most uh, successful episodes of that season. And you've got a new book out on uh, basically getting to know everything about the science and the basic troubleshooting of of soil, which a lot of uh, gardeners just, it's one of the most ignored aspects of of taking care of plants. So what do you say we kind of jump into talking about the specifics of soil? And I'll direct anybody who's interested on knowing about uh, more about ponds and of course your background to the previous episode. Yeah? Okay, it works for me. All right, so look. Soil is really at the root of everything, as you know, no pun intended. Let's start with how you define healthy soil, because depending on what you're looking for, the definition can change drastically, right? Yeah, it's it's actually kind of interesting that there aren't proper official definitions for many of these things. And so healthy soil is a very vague concept. Uh, People talk about Soil that makes plants grow well, so that's healthy soil, which is kind of a useless definition, really. Uh, I guess healthy soil is is soil that uh, is has a good community of life growing in it, and plants are just one aspect of that. Because we're gardeners, we we focus on the plants, and because most of this other life is too small to see, we kind of ignore it. And I think most gardeners know there's there's things in there. There's some fungi and microbes and bacteria and things. Uh, but we don't really spend a lot of time thinking about it. But it turns out that that life in the soil is absolutely critical to good plant growth in the soil. Now, you can you can grow plants hydroponically, so you can make the argument you don't even need soil. But if you're going to grow plants in the ground and, and uh, you're trying to put sort of a landscape type system in place, uh, gardening becomes so much easier once you have a healthy soil system. And the big part of that is, is what is living in soil. But the other part that's really important is the soil structure. And a lot of people aren't really aware that soil has this structure. We... We know it has things like sand, silt, and clay in it, and certainly people who have very sandy soil know that because it's a real problem to keep plants watered and to keep them fertilized because sand doesn't actually hold any nutrients. So if you fertilize sandy soil, it just runs through the soil. And if you're on sand, you you learn that pretty quickly. At the other extreme, you've got people who've got really heavy clay soils, and those are hard to work. They're slimy when they're wet. They stick to everything. So 
people with clay soil certainly know they have that. What a lot of people don't know is that clay soil is actually really great because it actually holds nutrients. So when we put fertilizer on the ground, you can think of clay as actually absorbing and sucking up these nutrients and holding them until the plants can use them. So clay soil is actually better than sandy soil, but we really want a mixture of both of those. Yeah, so a lot of my listeners who have been kind of keeping up with the, the different topics that I've covered on the podcast up until now will know that we talked about structure of soil much more in the context of natural building. I've talked about like the clay content and the sand content much more when it comes to like creating building materials such as adobe or cob or rammed earth. Um, but this, like you just mentioned, has a, has a real effect on the composition and the access for nutrients for plants as well. And so your book, Soil Science for Gardeners, is divided now into three sections that kind of guide readers through a deeper understanding of soils. So though you've already started explaining like the structure, let's kind of start even further back from the beginning and understanding what soil is by definition. So one of my favorite things that you start out by saying is that soil is an ecosystem and not a living organism itself. Can you explain that a little? Yeah, this, this is kind of a personal beef of mine. People go around talking about soil as if it's alive. The, the proper definition of soil, and there is an international association who figures this out, uh, does not include the living aspects of soil. So it's only dead organic matter and all of the mineral components. So soil is not living. It's a completely dead material. So this idea of having to feed soil and to nurture it and take care of soil and so on doesn't make any sense because it's, it's not alive. But there is the concept of a soil ecosystem, just like you might have a, a bog ecosystem. And in that ecosystem now, we have the soil as well as all the living components. And now we include the plants and, and the microbes and the dewworms and everything else that is in that. And when you take that all as, as, a, as an area and we look at all of that, now that's a soil ecosystem. It's still not alive, but it has living things in it. And I think people really need to understand the difference between the two. Yeah, it almost seems like the terminology that we have at this point is kind of inadequate because, like you said, soil gets used as a term for an entire ecosystem as if you were talking about like a desert <laughs> and yeah. all of the things that it contains, right? Because what most of us think of as soil is the sum of a whole ton of parts. You could talk about, you know, the minerals the microbiotic life, the fungi, the, the solutions that are created in the water and every other component and minerals that are vitamins in that. But let's talk about defining ideal soil for the gardener or the farmer. This is kind of an elusive term because though it's fairly well defined um, as, as kind of an idealistic set, it doesn't occur very often in nature, right? No. I mean, if you get a textbook, it'll tell you what ideal soil is, but virtually nobody has that. Uh, and the important thing that gardeners need to understand is it is not your job to make ideal soil. So I think sometimes people come away with this idea, well, well, this is 
perfect soil, so I want to do whatever I can to get there. And, and that's just not possible. So nobody has perfect soil, and you can't make perfect soil. So what you have to do as a gardener is make your soil as good as you can, given your starting point. And, and mostly the starting point are the minerals. Whatever sand, silt, and clay you have, that's what you have, and you really can't change that very much. You know, unless you're going to bring in big excavators and big trucks and move a lot of soil, you're sort of stuck with what you have. And so now the job of a gardener to create healthy soil is to start there and then improve on that. Let's talk about then the components of soil. First of all, what are the components that in a textbook would define that ideal soil that we just glossed over? And then we can kind of break down the components that people need to kind of have as far as a knowledge of the terms so that we can continue forward. Sure. So the mineral components uh, should be in the order of 40% uh, clay, 40% sand, and the rest silt, so that you have a bit of each of those. Uh, there's another component that's absolutely critical, and that's the organic material. But the organic material is actually a very small part of ideal soil. So if we look at the, the soil part and we exclude water and oxygen for now, it's, organic material is only 5% of that soil. And I think we, we think, well, geez, there's got to be all this carbon in the soil and all this organic material. But in fact, it's a very small percentage of the soil. The other two components that are important there is the oxygen and water. And something that I think surprises a lot of people, and in fact, it surprised me when I first seen it. I, I really didn't believe it. Uh, I had to you know, verify that this was actually correct. But soil has 25% air in it. Okay? So it's about 25% air, 25% water, and then... And the other 50% is minerals and organic matter. And that air is vital to plant growth. So most people know that plants photosynthesize and they get CO2 from the air. And with that and sunlight, they make food for the plant. What a lot of people don't realize is that plants also breathe oxygen just like animals do. So we breathe in oxygen and give off CO2 and plants do the same thing, both in the leaves, but mostly they do it in their roots. So it's absolutely vital that plant roots absorb oxygen. And so the amount of oxygen in your soil is, is really important, and you need to get up that up to a higher level. And in many soils, that's a real problem. It's, it's not so much nutrients, it's, it's the oxygen that's in the soil. Sure, for an, an absence of oxygen, you start to get anaerobic conditions, which can throw off the pH and so many other things and reduce the, the, the life that's sustaining and making nutrients accessible to plant roots. Let's now talk about how to identify or diagnose your own soil so that at least you know what you're working with from the beginning. Okay, so this is one of the things that I do in the book is that there's several tests in there that you can do yourself. And then there's other tests that you really want to do through a lab. So the one most people want to do is the nutrient test. They want to find out how many nutrients they have in their soil. 
And you can get kits from most nurseries, the do-it-yourself type kits. Uh, they have limited value because they don't actually give you a number. So if I use that kit and I test for phosphorus, for example, I either get a low, medium, or high value. So let's say I have a low value, and I say, look at it and say, okay, I need to add some phosphorus to my soil. How much should I add? Well, I have no idea because I don't actually have a number. I only have a relative value that says low. So I don't know if I have to add a little bit or a whole bunch. And that's the one of the limitations of the soil kits that are sold to gardeners. If you send your sample to a soil lab, they'll actually give you a number. And they'll say, this is the, num this is the amount of phosphorus in your soil. And here's how much you should add to bring it up to a level so you can grow your plants. And that's much more useful. Uh, one of the limitations of soil tests for nutrients is that generally they don't test for nitrogen. And of all the nutrients that might be missing from your soil, nitrogen is probably the one that's most likely missing. And yet labs don't test for it. And the reason they don't do that is because the nitrogen levels change very quickly. So by the time you gather a soil sample and send it down to the lab, the amount of nitrogen in, in your soil has already changed. So getting a result doesn't help you very much. So nitrogen is continually changing and it's being washed away. After heavy rain, you have less nitrogen and so on. And so that's one of the limitations of, of testing for, for nutrients. But there are other things that you also want to test. So if you don't know how much sand, silt, and clay you have in your soil, there is a nice uh, home test that you can do. And I actually have a, a video on the soil texture triangle and how to do that test. And it's helpful because then it gives you an idea of how much clay you have and how well that will hold nutrients and so on. So that's a test you can do. Is the Another test one is or the one with the solution in the jar? That's the solution in a jar. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's another one that we've used in natural building to kind of give you an idea of ratios of sand, silt, and clay. Um, yeah. So people might, who have listened to this might already know that one. Okay. Uh, the other one that's pretty easy to do is a compaction test. And there's a, you can buy an expensive piece of equipment to do this. But for most gardeners, uh, I just take a wire, a fairly stiff, straight wire, and you push it in the soil and see how far you can push it down before it starts to bend and what you want to do is you want to compare the soil where you have your garden to some natural soil nearby so ideally soil that hasn't been disturbed too much uh, it'd be great if you're near a wilder or field or something or a forest uh, sometimes you can use your fence line because people don't walk right along the soil on your fence line and they don't do do anything there so that's so it's usually not compacted too much so you measure that and then compare it to your garden but where it's very useful is is to measure your soil every year to see how you're improving it and compaction is a real problem in many areas particularly newer home developments um, the soil gets the topsoil gets removed the, then they bring in the, back, the big excavators and all the heavy equipment and, and you run over the soil over and over and over again and you packed it way down. 
then they put a little couple inches of topsoil back and, and you're supposed to create a garden out of that. And what that compaction does is it squeezes out all that air that we want, right? So suddenly your soil has, doesn't have enough air in it and plant roots don't grow very well. So compaction is an indirect measure of how much air you have in your soil. And compaction is probably one of the worst things, one of the biggest problems that gardeners have in their soil. Um, there's also a percolation task that you can do where you, in effect, uh, dig a little hole and fill it with water, uh, let the water run away. Then you come back the next day, put some more water in and measure how fast that water runs away. Uh, if the hole is full and it sits there, then you don't have very good drainage. You have, a, you have a real problem. If it runs away completely, then you're probably sitting on very sandy soil and nothing's holding that water in place. And since water is one of the big components of healthy soil, uh, you want that water to sit for a while so it soaks in and plants have an opportunity to absorb some, but you don't want it to sit too long because now plant roots are sitting in water and they can't get any air. So that's why the percolation test is, is useful to do too. And it's very easy for a homeowner to do that. It seems like so you go through this series of kind of a mid range, almost the Goldilocks and the three bears kind of philosophy that anything too far from one side or the other is, is not ideal. You're looking for kind of a balance in all of these tests. That's correct. And what I do in the, my book is I actually go through these tests and I, I give you some values and I, I tell you that, you know, this value is too low or this one's too high and, and you kind of rate your soil based on what value you actually get. So, so while we're on the subject of tests, you want to talk about one of my favorites from the book that I had never heard of before, the tidy whitey test. <laughs> Well, I kind of threw that one in as a little fun thing that you know people read, hopefully, and, and kind of enjoy. But it actually works. And it, it was developed uh, by one of the universities in the States. And what you essentially do is, is take a pair of underwear and bury it. Now, these have to be cotton underwear. Okay? And cotton, of course, is made from plants. And it decomposes just like other plant material. So you take your underwear, you put it in the soil, you, you wait for a certain period of time, and then you dig it up and have a look at it. And if it's completely decomposed, that means you have a lot of microbes in your soil. You have a very healthy microbe community that has come along and started decomposing that cotton. If you dig it up and most of the underwear is still there, it means you don't have a very healthy community of microbes. How and, long do you leave it in there again? Uh, I can't remember. I think in the book <laughs> it says something like five or eight weeks, somewhere between there. Something like that. Yeah. 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 Okay. So it's a little while. Yeah, it's a little while. Wow. Um, but it actually is, is a, again, a relatively good test. And uh, it, it actually works. And the scientists have actually tried it in different types of soils where they know the quality of the soils. And it's a pretty good indicator of how many microbes you have. Yeah, I love that one because I, I really hadn't heard anything as far as a test 
for microbiotic life. It's, you know, only recently have we really discovered how important that is to the actual health of the ecosystem within the soils. And it seems just like, you know, one of those cute and super easy to do, uh, you know, things that you can, you can do at home that gives you a fairly accurate result. That, that's right. Um, and it's, it's actually quite interesting. And this whole thing about making healthy soil ends up being all about microbes, right? That's the secret sauce to healthy soil. Mm. And as gardeners, we have absolutely no way to measure that. So if you look at soil and you want to say, okay, how healthy is it? Well, you have to know how many microbes you have. But you, you have no way of measuring that. Uh, there are some indirect ways, and so the, the, you know, the underwear test is one of them. The other one is dewworms. So you can actually do a counting of dewworms. So you take a, uh, a square yard of soil and, and you, you dig it up and you measure how many worms you have in there. And the number of dewworms is an indicator of micropopulations because uh, the earthworm's main diet is bacteria. And so the more bacteria you have in the soil, the more dewworms you'll have and so it's a, a, an indirect measure. But we don't really have any good way of knowing what's in our soil. And yet those microbes is, is the most important thing in our soil. Right? So um, let's talk about another aspect of soil health that people put a whole lot of importance on, but can sometimes be misleading. And of course, this is the pH uh, or acidity or alkalinity of soil. Can you talk a little bit about what it really means and, and how it affects the way right. plants grow? All right. So pH is a measure of how much acidity you have in the soil. Um, if I word that correctly, it's actually a measure of how many hydrogen ions we have in the soil. Uh, but most people call it acidity. Now, it turns out that plants actually don't care what the pH of soil is. Um, they're not very fussy. But there is an indirect problem for plants, and that is that plants need to absorb nutrients. And at certain pH levels, some nutrients stick too hard to soil and plants can't, can't get to them. So iron is one of them, for instance. If my soil pH goes too high, the iron sticks to the soil and plants can't get it. And so then plants show signs of iron deficiency, which is intervenal chlorosis, uh, a yellowing of the leaves between the veins. So the plant looks like it doesn't have enough iron, but there's lots of iron in the soil. The problem is the pH so high that the plants can't get at the iron. So there's an indi indirect reason why we have to have a certain pH because plants can only get their nutrients at certain pHs. And for most plants, that range turns out to be somewhere around 6, sort of 6.5 to 5.5 is a very good range where most plants can get most nutrients. Now, there are some plants that are not as good at getting these nutrients, and they need a lower pH. And those are the, the plants like rhododendrons and blueberries and azaleas, and they're called acid-loving plants. Well, they don't actually like the acid so much, but 
that's the only way that they can get the nutrients out of the soil is with a low pH. Hmm. So indirectly, pH is important. And so now it, it turns out these that, are the plants that have kind of naturally grown accustomed to like bogs and wetland areas where the pH tends to be more acidic because of anaerobic conditions of like wet soils? Sure. The, the same thing applies there. Okay. It, it is all about really absorbing nutrients, not so much pH. Got it. In fact, um, high pH is generally not a problem for plants, provided they can get the nutrients. Uh, plants can grow in quite high pHs without any harm at all to the plants, uh, but they have to have access to those nutrients. So a lot of gardeners have heard this. Uh, we know about pH. We know the range that plants kind of like to have. And so gardeners have this feel, they, they feel the need to make the perfect pH for their plants. And, and that's a bit of a fallacy. Um, for the majority of plants, unless you have very acidic soil, they will grow fine. Even if you have a pH of eight, most plants will still grow fine in a pH of eight. And it's better for you not to try to change your pH because in most soil, that's really hard to do. Uh, I know that there's a lots of information on the internet and it says, oh, put some peat moss in your soil. Um, I've done that experiment and peat moss is acidic, but the minute you put it into alkaline soil, within a week, the acidity is gone. So mm. adding peat moss does nothing to acidify soil. Uh, the same with pine needles, which is another very common myth that pine needles are acidic. And it turns out, A, that they're really not acidic or they're, they're just very slightly acidic when they're on the tree. And by the time they fall off and they're brown, they're, they're not acidic and does nothing to acidify soil. So if you need to acidify soil, you can use sulfur which is probably your best choice. But a much better choice is not to acidify soil and to grow plants for the pH that you have. You know, so I, I have alkaline soil. It's about a 7.4. I don't try to grow rhododendrons. They don't grow around here. Same mm. with blueberries. I can't really grow blueberries unless I put them in a container and continually put in acidic compounds to keep the soil acidic. Right. So I just don't grow those plants. Uh, people have more acidic soil than, than they grow plants that like acidic soil and don't and leave the ones that need alkaline soil alone. Right. So for most people, it's best not to try to adjust your pH. It's so, valuable to know what it is. Yeah. Uh, so you can pick the right plants. But. Uh, adjusting it is, is a never-ending thing that you're going to have to do every year from now till the end of your life. So it's just not worth doing. Yeah, better not to force it. So yeah. on this kind of subject indirectly of the nutrients, I know that's another one of those kind of fussy subjects that a lot of gardening gurus have uh, very strong opinions on. And there seems to be kind of a, a dogmatic adherence to the NPK, the nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium like uh, macronutrients and and I think you mentioned too in the book that most soils are fine on micronutrients so uh, like tell me kind of your opinion your stance on on the nutrients uh, 
side of things. Yeah, so I'll probably disagree with a lot of people here. Um, so th let's talk micronutrients first. Unless you have very sandy soil, your soil probably has all the micronutrients it needs. Okay. Now that's assuming that you have some clay in the soil and that there is some level of organic matter in the soil. And as long as you have those two things, you probably do not have a nutrient deficiency. Now there's going to be exceptions. I mean, there's, there's a million different kinds of the soils, and I'm sure there's, there's a listener somewhere out there who says, I know that my soil is deficient of, of something. Um, but most soil is not. So now that leaves us with the three major nutrients. And it, it turns out that we have a lot of myths about these nutrients and fertilizer. So one of the first ones is that this idea that we have to feed plants. Somehow, we, it's like us eating. We have to, you know, every month or so, we have to feed these plants. And that's really complete nonsense. Um, the point of adding fertilizer to your garden, and whether this is synthetic fertilizer or it's compost or manure, it doesn't really matter. All of those things are adding nutrients to the garden. The reason we add nutrients to the garden is to replace the nutrients that are missing in the soil. It has nothing to do with feeding plants. We're actually feeding the soil, but we want to add the nutrients that are missing. Um, one of the ways I try to get people to understand this, uh, if you go to Google and you Google tomato fertilizer and set it to images so you see all the pictures of all the fertilizer products, look at them all. They all have different formulations. Okay, You can e easily find a dozen different fertilizers. They're all tomato fertilizer. They're all perfect for tomatoes, and they all have different NPK numbers. So how can that be? If there was such a thing as a tomato fertilizer, they would all have the same number because the scientists would have figured that out and said, well, okay, tomatoes need, you know, a 10, 5, 3, and that's perfect for tomatoes. That's not what we have. We have all kinds of different numbers. And the reason is that it has nothing to do with the plant. It has nothing to do with tomatoes. So if we have, you and I both try to grow tomatoes and my soil is deficient of potassium, I need to add potassium. If your soil is deficient of phosphorus, you have to add phosphorus. So the fertilizer you and I need for the same tomatoes is completely different because it's dependent on the soil, not on the plants. Sure. And once you understand that, you realize that the whole business of getting nutrients into the soil is all about figuring out what you're missing and then add those missing components. Right? Yeah. So now the obvious question is, well, how do you know what's missing? And there's only one way, and that's to do a soil test. You know, a soil test would tell you if you're deficient. Well, that's sorry, that's not entirely correct. Um, my approach is, is a different approach. What I do is I just plant lots of different things. And if they grow, I know I'm not deficient. Right. If, if I had a nutrient deficiency and I can grow 50 different kinds of plants and they're all doing quite well, I don't have a soil deficiency. If I did, they wouldn't be growing well. 
Right. So if I'm growing things and they're not doing well, then I want to go get a soil test because there's something wrong in my soil. It could be too low. It could also be too high. So one of the things that people are finding now is that a lot of gardeners understand and they need to put lots of organics into the soil and they're going overboard and they're putting in huge amounts of organics and they're actually poisoning the plants because now they have too many nutrients. So that can be a problem in that kind of a situation. So grow plants, if they're not growing, and get a soil test and find out whether you're low or high on something. If the plants are growing well, then guess what? You don't need to fertilize because the soil already has what it needs. Well, so let's come back around to this idea of plants as indicators and as uh, a tool that you can use to diagnose problems in your soil. And before we get to that, let's come back to kind of the, the key to all of the, the functions of the soil ecosystem, which is the life inside of the soil. So we've talked about structure, we've talked about nutrients, pH, and those types of things. But how do we foster healthy life within the soil ecosystem? So uh, let's start back with the structure. So soil has this three-dimensional type of structure called aggregation. And what I recommend gardeners do is go for a walk in the woods, someplace in a forest that has been there for 100 years and nobody's touched it, and touch that soil and see what it looks like. In most cases, it will be black. It will be very crumbly. You'll be able to dig it with your hands without a shovel. That soil has really good aggregation. And aggregation is sort of a, a, a clumping together of all the bits and pieces of soil, the sand, silt, and clay, and organic matter, and the microbes, and the fungi, and plant roots. It all kind of clumps together into these larger pieces we call aggregates. And healthy soil has very good aggregation. And the, the real value of these aggregates is that they're big and they allow lots of water and air between them, right? So aggregation uh, reduces compaction and allows lots of air to get into the soil, and plants love that. All the roots go between the aggregates because the spaces are big enough for roots to, to grow through. How do you get aggregation? Well, you get aggregation by having a, a healthy micropopulation. Lots of bacteria and algae and fungi and, and there's hundreds of different things in your soil. And as a group, I just call those microbes. So healthy soil is all about keeping microbes happy. And microbes, for the most part, eat organic matter. So we want to keep giving them organic matter, which they decompose and as they decompose that organic matter, it releases nutrients and these microbes eat the nutrients and they leave some for the plants. So the more organic matter you have in there, the more microbes you get and it's sort of a snowball effect. The microbes create more aggregates that adds more air. Um, you get a healthier soil and it slowly builds up the structure of that soil. So really those microbes, the purpose so those microbes is to build good soil, is to make those aggregates. And those aggregates slowly fall, fall apart over time, so you have to keep the microbes there. It's not a one-time pro, 
one step process. It's, it's continual process. And so we want to keep adding a small amount of organic matter to the soil over a long period of time and slowly build up our aggregation. All right, so from there, let's talk about some of the common soil issues and solutions that you mentioned in the second portion of this book. Now that we have a pretty well-rounded understanding of the different components and aspects of soil, some of the terminology, uh, obviously your book goes into way more detail than we can cover here. Let's talk about some of the common things, like I said, that, that people might find in their garden or on their farms and talk about what we can do about them. Let's start with... Um, Cases of when you don't need to fertilize, because this seems to be sort of a prevailing knowledge that if anything isn't growing well, it's for a lack of fertilizer. What would you say to that? Oh, it, it could be lots of things. Uh, it could be for it could be nutrients, right? It could be fertilizer. Uh, it could be watering issues. Okay, not enough water, too little water. It can be a drainage issue. So if the, if the water gets into the soil and just sits there, that means that not enough oxygen is getting in. So drainage is important. Uh, it can be um, the type of soil you actually have. Um, so if it's really sandy soil, you have much lower nutrients. So that can be an issue. Uh, it can also be a, a, a function of oxygen. So compaction is a big problem. If you're trying to grow things in compacted soil, they just won't grow well. And you can fertilize them all you want. It's not really going to help the problem because the problem is a lack of oxygen, which is, there, it is due because of compaction. So what you have to now do is to go through and try and, and analyze your soil and decide which of these possible problems you have. Uh, do you have a drainage issue? Compaction issue, nutrient issue, uh, you know, what is the problem here? Um, the other issue is not enough uh, organic matter. So our traditional way of farming, um, we use a lot of plowing. So we're constantly digging up that soil and we're removing crops. And so the amount of organic material in that soil is dropping. And that's the real problem with our agricultural system right now is that we, we are using up the organic matter that's been built up, you know, for hundreds and thousands of years, and we're slowly decreasing that. So now someone comes along and builds a house there, and someone moves in and has a garden on that farmland. They start out with poor soil. Right? So the amount of organic matter in many soils is probably too low. Now, if you live in a house that's 100 years old and, and that you've had gardeners living in that house for 100 years, you probably have excellent soil because they're, they're, they brought it back to life. But if it's a newer soil uh, and a newer subdivision, um, it can be very low in organic matter. So a big problem you have is that you're not going to be able to take care of your microbes because there isn't enough organic matter in the soil. That's the food for microbes. At the same time, it may be too compacted, and microbes need air just like us, and so compacted soil has less microbes. So the trick is to go through and identify which of these problems you have. Now, there are some other areas of, you know, if you're on sloped land, you have areas where the water settles and stays wet, and other areas that stay dry. So the topography of your soil can also be important. 
and what the book does, it sort of walks you through each of the, these possible problems that you might have and shows you how, how to identify if, in fact, you have one of these problems. Because everybody's going to have a different set of problems. And then once you have an understanding of where you are, what you have today, and what your problems are, then you have a chance of correcting those problems. Sure. Now, so you mentioned kind of tilling as this problem of uh, industrial agriculture and some people's gardening practices. Let's talk a little bit about the effects on the soil that tilling has, not just getting rid of organic matter, but the kind of full spectrum of, of what happens to soil composition and life when it gets exposed and tossed up into the air like that. Yeah, so there, there's a number of uh, issues with, with tilling. One is, of course, you have, um, you have more loss of the surface soil through the winds and so on because you've loosened the top up and it gets blown away. And so that's a big problem on large farms, not so much in a backyard because the wind doesn't move it around so much. Um, the big problem is that tilling adds more oxygen to the soil immediately, which means the decomposition process speeds up. So right after tilling, you've got lots of air in that soil. The microbes get all excited and start growing they start decomposing the organic matter faster than usual. And, and that's why you have this drop in organic matter. Uh, that's particularly true with, with bacteria. Tilling also damages the fungal uh, life that's in the soil. So fungi live in soil by making long filaments, and, and they're yards long, and the tilling chops all those up. So in effect, it kills off a lot of the fungi life that's in the soil. Um, bacteria is small enough that they're not really bothered by that. So what you have is a decrease in organic matter, a decrease in fungi. You've completely changed the microbe community that lives there because you have growth on the, uh, the bacterial side, but a decrease in fungi. So you've changed the ratio of all of those things. You basically take and this uh, soil system that you have and completely change the populations in it. And so you end up with a different kind of growth and different set of microbes in that soil. Yeah. Right. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about the hard pan effect too that can sometimes come from repeated tilling? Yeah. Yeah. So on a, on a, <clears throat> a farmed area, tilling only goes down so far. And particularly things like a rotor tiller type of tilling, it only goes down, let's say, eight inches. And you do that repeatedly. But at the eight-inch mark, you're actually compacting soil. So the top part looks loose, but at the bottom of that tiller, you're actually pressing the soil down and creating a compacted layer, which is your hard pan. And so after many years, you get this layer that roots have trouble penetrating. Again, sure. you... What you've done is you, you've compacted the soil. It's just a little lower than if you just walk on the soil. Yeah, it's kind of like a little superficial facade on the top of the earth, but the, yeah. the effects are worse down below. Are there any situations in which you would recommend tilling? Are there any long-term benefits? Well, it depends on, on sort of who, who it is. There are reasons why farmers till, and there's certain crops 
crops that just don't do well without tilling. Uh, around here, we're a zone five, so it's fairly cool. And if farmers don't till, the, the soil doesn't dry out fast enough in spring for them to get a crop because of our short growing season. So certain crops just won't grow well without tilling. Um, in warmer climates, that's, that's less of an issue. As a backyard gardener or small farmer, um, the best thing to do is, is to never till. Um, I, I don't see a problem with tilling the first time when you're preparing a bed for the first time and you're, you're, you know, you're starting out with a pretty crappy soil and it's compacted and everything and you want to incorporate a bunch of organic matter and you till the whole thing in, that's fine. But once your garden is prepared, the trick is not to walk on the planting beds, walk on permanent paths, and then don't till again. Uh, the rule of thumb is disturb that soil as little as possible. Right. And that will build better aggregation. So I think on a small garden type lot, there's never a reason to till. Yeah, and one of the other things that I've heard from tilling too is that though it doesn't seem like it, especially in the beginning, once you've gotten rid of all of the, let's say, weeds or anything else you didn't want on the surface there, it actually wakes up dormant weed seeds or any other plants that you didn't want um, that had just been lying in the, just below the top of the soil and were inactive until you kind of expose them to oxygen and light. And there can often be a bigger flush of weeds than than the issue you were kind of fighting to begin with. Yeah. So tilling gets rid of the weeds you see, but right, right under the soil is something called the, the seed bank. And there's millions and millions of seeds just waiting to get some light. Mm. And so these seeds might be down, you know, half an inch or so, and it's too dark. And they won't germinate until they get more light. And tilling brings them to the surface and they germinate. So the process of tilling actually increases the amount of weeds you have. Yeah. And so yeah. You, then you come along and you till again. Right? Um, so you're well, much so better off using some sort of mulch, keeping yeah. the weeds from from. Well, that's perfect because that's exactly what I was about to ask about. So mulching is, you know, very well known, especially in permaculture circles and uh, ecological gardening circles. There's a lot of different ways to do it, and each one kind of has different benefits and drawbacks. Do you want to kind of talk on mulch for a second? Sure. Uh, I'm a big believer in mulch. In a uh, uh, sort of a garden setting, I like using wood chips as my mulch. Uh, it lasts a fairly long period of time. In our climate, it's about three years before I have to replace it. So that works well. Um, it's relatively inexpensive if you can get it from arborists. And it just holds the moisture in that soil really well. And there's virtually no weeds that come through it. Uh, I mean, there's some perennial weeds that have long runners and so on. They're an issue. But um, germination from seed is, is almost zero under a good layer of, of wood chip mulch. Now, there is a myth around that says that putting wood chips on a Soil robs the soil of nitrogen, which harms the plants. And, and that has a bit of truth to it. So wood is very high in carbon, very low in nitrogen. So for microbes to decompose it, they have to get nitrogen from somewhere. And they get it from the soil. But they're getting it from the top millimeter or two of soil. They're not getting it where the plant roots are. So the nitrogen 
levels at plant root don't change. The nitrogen levels right at the top of the soil will go down as that wood decomposes. So it's, it's sort of true, but that the net result is that it has no effect on your plant growth. Hmm. So now we go over to the vegetable garden and I could use wood chips there too. The problem in a vegetable garden is you tend to churn the soil a little more. You know, you're, you're, you're moving it to plant seeds or you're moving it to plant seedlings. Then you're harvesting, you're weeding it a little more. You're, every time you're in there, you're kind of moving soil around. And that process takes those wood chips and starts digging them into the soil. Even if you try not to do that, some of them still go in. And once you take wood chips and bury them, then they will take nitrogen from around the wood chips. So if that wood chip ends up next to roots, then there is a bit less nitrogen for your plants. Now, I don't know how significant that is. You'd have to, I think, put a, quite a bit of wood chips in there. But for that reason, wood chips is probably not your best choice for a vegetable garden. And in a vegetable garden, I much prefer uh, using straw. And it uh, fluffs up nice. It keeps the weeds down. It tend, because they're, they're longer pieces, they tend not to get buried in the soil so much. Um, they are high in carbon, so it's still a bit of an issue, but they decompose a little easier. So I find something like straw or hay works much better in a vegetable garden than wood chips. But I, I wouldn't do either one without mulch. Um, sure. It cuts down the amount of watering drastically. And these days, in a lot of areas, water is becoming more and more precious all the time. Um, and it's just less work if you don't have to water these things. So I, I'm a big believer in mulch. The other thing people don't realize is that plant roots don't like to be warm. They actually like nice, cool soil. And so having a mulch on there keeps the soil cooler, the plant roots are happier, uh, keeps the weeds out, a lot less work. I think it's just a, a perfect solution. Well, oh, like and they both add- nature grows without that. Like yeah. You know, in any healthy ecosystem, you won't see a bunch of bare soil and then a handful of very delicate crops, much like most of the ones that we we choose to eat in a vegetable garden. They just yeah. they wouldn't grow like that under any other circumstance. It uh, an area like that doesn't last very long. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, for a week, and it's covered with weeds again. Right? It's, nature says something has to grow there. Exactly. Yeah. It's going to go through its successive models to try and remediate the soil with whatever tools it has. So, all right, let's talk. Uh, we've, we've covered tilling and mulching. Let's talk about chemical problems. This is, uh, this is one that I just I didn't know very much about. It's not a problem that I had come up with in most of the soils that I've worked with in the past. Can you give us a little overview on chemical problems in the soil? Oh, there's many of them. <laughs> <laughs> it's a broad topic, so let's go over it kind of briefly, and definitely people yeah. who are interested or, or know specific issues about chemical problems in their own soil can, can look for it in the book. Yeah, so, so this, this is another area that a, a gardener sort of needs to work through to see if any of these apply to them. Uh, so there are some soils that have very high salt concentrations, and by salt here I'm talking about sodium chloride. So... Uh, soil that's near the ocean generally has high sodium levels. Uh, in inland seas that, that were salty at one point, so this can be a, 
a geological thing so that, you know, a million years ago you had a saltwater ocean where your garden is now. And so you end up with uh, sodium pro uh, salts in your garden. Sodium is very toxic to plants. And that's the main issue with sodium. So you have to know if that's a problem. Uh, if you have to irrigate with um, salty water, then you have some other special issues. But, but that doesn't apply to, to most people. Uh, you can have other types of salts in your soil. So you can have uh, very high levels of lime in your soil. Um, a lot of carbonates can be a problem in your soil. Um, carbonates come a lot from limestone. So if you're in an area with that's made up of limestone, then you, you may have high carbonate levels. So that can be an issue. Um, so you have to determine if any of those apply. Then we go back to our nutrients. Uh, you can certainly have high nutrient levels. Phosphorus is becoming more of a concern in a lot of soils. So for many years, we, we followed fertilizer manufacturer's advice and we used 10-10-10. And we spread that in our gardens year after year after year. Uh, and then people realized that, you know what? Uh, in North America, at least, most soil in North America has lots of phosphorus already. We don't have to add any. And so many manufacturers are now taking, out of, taking it out of fertilizer, but a lot of the damage has been done. And, and the thing with phosphorus is that it doesn't move through the soil very quickly. It, it moves a few millimeters a year through soil. So once you have this problem, it's there for a long time. And so high phosphorus levels can be a problem, uh, and it will keep plants from growing. It can be, in effect, toxic to plants. Um, so you want to go through sort of a series of different things to look at and see if any of those apply to your soil. And then each one of those have different types of remediation uh, that you can do. Again, the good news is that for most gardeners, those are not an issue, but it's something that you really should be aware of in case that is your problem. Sure. So as we kind of graduate through these different things that people can find as, as potential issues and, and go through some solutions here, we talked as well about, you know, the life in the soil and it's kind of coming in and out of fashion to either do like uh, organic teas, compost teas, or, at the moment, it's very popular to put in um, what they call essential microbes, EMs, or other inoculants into the soil to sort of boost or, or give, a, give a little surge of life in there. What do you think about the efficacy of these and, and if they're necessary in many cases? So I guess let's start with a warning to gardeners. I think the market's going to get flooded with containers containing microbes. So they are used in agriculture, and they do work in certain situations. But all kinds of companies are now trying to figure out which of these microbes we're going to package up. And you've probably seen mycorrhizal fungi for sale. Uh, there are all kinds of other mixtures with bacteria plus fungi in them. Here's, here's the big problem with them. We know that all of these microbes, can be good for soil. There's, there's no doubt about that. Mycorrhizal fungi are important for natural plant life. No, 
nobody questions that. The question is, can I take a jar of these things and put it on my soil and make any difference? And here's the big problem you have. If your soil is deficient in other ways, so it doesn't have enough oxygen and it doesn't have enough organic matter, the microbes aren't there because they don't want to be there. They can't live there. Microbes reproduce extremely quickly. And, and they live in any place that is suitable for them. Adding a few more microbes to that situation isn't going to help them because they don't want to live there. They don't have the right conditions for them to live there. If the conditions were right, they would already be there. Mm. So adding microbes to soil really makes no sense at all unless you're trying to deal with a very specific problem, and those are generally disease problems. So you're putting in a microbe to fight the disease. And in agriculture, they can do that because they, they'll do all the studies and the, the preliminary work to make sure they're adding the right microbes. But if for a general gardener, none of these things are working. Hmm. Okay. The, it's the kind micro of like the thing with the probiotics that people consume, right? I've heard about so many people like being on either, you know, pills or solutions or special probiotic drinks, but then their diet is still a mess and those beneficial bacteria that are in those drinks don't have anything to eat or consume or to keep them alive once they're actually in your body. It's a very similar situation, hmm. right? So they're, and, and the other thing, people don't understand how many microbes you have. So if you take a pinch of soil, so this is the weight of a paperclip, which is about a gram of soil. In good soil, you can easily have a billion bacteria in that soil. Okay. When you go to the store and buy them, you don't get that many in a, in a jar. Okay, your soil has huge, huge numbers of microbes already. Even poor soil has large, large numbers of microbes. And it's, the numbers are so big that we can't even get our head around them. Um, adding a few more isn't going to make any difference whatsoever. What are some of the things that you can do to make sure that the microbes have the living conditions that they need to thrive on their own without these extra inoculants? Right. So microbes need a couple things. They need the air, they need the water, and they need food. So it's really hard for us to get air in the soil. There's nothing we can really do to do that except to make the soil better. And when we do that, the air comes naturally. Uh, water, it's good that soil does not dry out because when soil dries out, a lot of these microbes either die off or have to go into hibernation. So keeping soil regularly moist is better for microbe growth. So that leaves food. And so the real secret is to feed them. And the best food for microbes is some sort of organic matter. And we want to add organic matter that has what I like to call bulk. So something that that's, you can actually see. So let's compare two things here. Let's compare a fish head with with a fish extract fertilizer. They're both made from fish. They both have nutrients for plants, but the extracted material is a liquid and it doesn't have any long-term feeding effect for microbes. If I take the fish head and, 
and Barry Ed, it's going to take the next five years to decompose completely. So over a five-year period, it's slowly feeding my microbes. It's slowly decomposing. And in the process, it adds carbon to the soil. So it's adding humus to that soil. So we want something bulky. So compost, manure, uh, plant residue, you know, um, uh, rice hulls, any kind of byproduct from plant industry is generally a good thing to get. Um, something organic, something that has bulk, and we want to continually add some to the soil, provided we don't add too much. So a couple inches a year, put on the surface, nature will take it into the soil, and that's all you really need. And that's the food for the microbes. If you keep doing that, the micro populations will increase. Hmm. So let me see if I get this right, because though there's a lot of detail and specifics and hard science in each specific topic that we've kind of covered in this, there also seem to be some kind of broad strokes that anybody, even if they don't have any experience in this, can kind of use to first diagnose or find the problems that they're having in their soil and some general guidelines that tend to work for, for most situations. If, if I understand it right, the first thing you got to do is do some tests. And most of the time it doesn't come to the point where you need to do laboratory tests unless you're maybe in uh, an agro business and you have some very specific needs or, you know, planting regimen. But there's some simple things that you can do, both feeling, using the jar test, um, and others that we mentioned to kind of diagnose what point your soil is at before you start adding any kind of amendments, adding nutrients or anything, because until you know what deficiencies are or what the texture, the, the composition is, you know, you don't really know what you're doing. And then from there, some of the broad strokes is, is making sure that there's enough organic material in the soil and that you're not overfeeding it or, or causing toxic levels of any nutrients um, to <laughs> just, for, just from not knowing. Am I kind of on base here? Or are there some other things that you would su suggest that people can kind of do without having to worry about it or needing to know too many specifics about their soil? Well, you're on the, you're on the right track. Uh, you, you, you go through that testing process. You uh, identify what issues you might have with your soil. And then I think the third step is, is to decide which of those issues is a priority. Which one should you tackle first? Mm, Most people yeah, can't yeah. do them all at one time. So you sort of end up with this list of things. You know, I have a certain level of compaction, and I know how much compaction I have. I have these other issues. Now, which of these are my priorities? Which one should I tackle first? There's also an issue that some of these things are, can be qu fixed quickly and other things can't be fixed quickly. Uh, so if, you know, if my soil has no potassium, that's really easy. I can just put on potassium fertilizer and I've solved that. That's quick. If my organic levels are low, that's not a quick fix. That's, that's a long-term fix. So you want to look at all these issues and these Decide, okay, which ones can I reasonably do today and which ones should be my priority? And then which ones am I going to leave for tomorrow and the year after and the year after? Mm. And but so that kind of leads us into that third portion of the book in how to develop a personalized plan 
on your specific soil. And you've got great resources there in the back, including worksheets that people can fill out and kind of use as guides along the process. Can you kind of explain the general protocol for, for going through those steps? Yeah. So it's, it's very similar to what you've described there. So step one is, is to go through the various tasks and the charts actually get you to apply a number to it. And it's a simple numbering system, one to three, uh, but we apply a number. Is this, you know, okay, but not great? Or is it really good? Or is it really bad? And we, we apply a number to it. And we go through all of the various tests and you kind of get that as a report card. And then you can see exactly what are the worst issues in your soil. And then the second part of that is for you to go through and figure out what steps you want to take. And that has a lot to do with your time, your cost, you know, how much can you afford to do at one time financially. And then you make a list of your priorities for this year. And then you go through and do that. And then next year, you sort of go through the whole process again. You, you retest your, some of those things in your soil. Now, you don't have to retest everything because you'll know some things are okay, but you retest some of them. You measure the progress you've made since last year, and then you reevaluate all of the things you can do and come up with a new work list for, this, for, for the, the current year. And you do that year after year, and that way you can see how your soil is slowly improving. It really forces you to prioritize the most important things first and work on those. Yeah, that's what I really like about this system is that, you know, it's highly customizable. It's obviously going to give you a determined result based on your specific situation, but it breaks down the steps, like you said, into priorities, into long-term, short-term goals, so that it, it takes kind of the weight off of what it, it means to improve soil because it's such a kind of amalgamous large topic and can be really daunting if you look at it as this major task, especially when certain aspects take a really long time to reform. And by breaking it down into those smaller steps, it kind of makes it a manageable thing, especially when you take it into context of like your time uh, and your financial investments and what you can put into it and what you can do in the short term. Right. Yeah. And, and everyone's situation is going to be a little different. You know, are you growing vegetables or are you, do you have a, an ornamental garden bed you're working with? So your priorities will be different for those sort of scenarios. Um, you know, what are your priorities as far as staying in the property? How long are you going to have this soil? You plan to live there for three years and then move or is this a long-term project? You can, you can take all of those things into account and then come up with a system that works for you. I love it. So look, uh, for those of you listening, the book is Soil Science for Gardeners. Robert, before you go, can you tell us about the other books that you have available and what other resources you have online? Because you have so many. All right. So let's, we'll go through the books first. By the way, they're all available on Amazon and they're available in other sources too, but they're definitely available on Amazon. I don't sell them direct off my various websites and so on. So that's the best place to get them. Uh, the new one is Soil Science for Gardeners. Uh, it's not quite available yet. I'm not quite sure when this podcast will air, but it, it should be shipping. You can order it from Amazon today, and it should be shipping around 
1st to the 15th of March. So we're really close to the release date now. Yeah, I mean, for those I mean, who have been listening to, I would recommend that you get the book through New Society Publishers if you want to make you sure your money is going to a good source and an ethical distributor as well. Um, my other books, I have two books called Garden Myths, um, which uh, is the subject that I write a lot about so I have a blog called gardenmyths.com and I have two books garden myths book one and book two they're both completely different they both cover about 120 different myths uh, covering a full range of different topics and each book's a little different the topics are on the cover uh, those are available those are self-published so they're available from Amazon but not available from New Society and and then my first book, which we mentioned, is uh, Building Natural Ponds. And about 14 years ago, I wanted to build a pond that didn't use pumps and filters and uh, chemicals and so on. I just wanted a real natural pond. Everybody told me you couldn't do it. So I went ahead and did it anyways <laughs> and waited for four or five years. And it worked perfectly. And so I started writing about it, and then New Society publishers came along and asked me to write a book about it. It, it works beautifully. It's, you're basically using plants and a proper pond design to do all of your cleaning. I have no algae problems. I have crystal clear water, and I do nothing to the pond every year except once a year I top it up because we just don't get enough rain here. Uh, I don't clean it out. I, I haven't scooped the bottom out in, in a long time. It's full of frogs and dragonflies and, and all kinds of animals come to, to drink there. Um, it, it works really well. Uh, if you want to get in touch with me, uh, search Garden Fundamentals. I have a YouTube channel, a Facebook group that you can join, and we have gardeners from all over the place joining that. And I have a blog. So GardenFundamentals.com, Fundamentals on YouTube, and also Facebook group. I love it. These are all great resources. I highly recommend. I check out that blog recently. And, um, yeah, there's some great stuff on there. I think I just shared a post about the myth about um, air purifying plants in the home. Uh, that was a really good one because that was one that I believed for a long time before looking further into it. I love that there's people out there kind of digging in deeper because, you know, we just don't have the time to dispel all the myths that circulate on the Internet. But this is a really good resource to, to get to the bottom of a lot of those things. The interesting thing is that I believe a lot of those myths, too, when I start looking into them. And, you know, it just be something that comes in my head and says, well, you know, we all talk about plants purifying homes. How efficient are they? And I see people advertising different plants. So then I just start researching it and find out the truth. But many of the myths I debunk, I believe them too when I start, right? It, yeah, that's the thing, right? They, they all seem a, true until you, until you know differently. Yeah. Well, hey, look, Robert, thank you so much for taking the time to share your knowledge with us again. Uh, I'm really excited to continue on with this book and kind of apply it as I get a piece of land and can start to apply some of the, the tests and the different uh, kind of techniques to improve the soil. It, like you said, it's, it's one of these kind of long-term, sometimes lifetime journeys that you go through, but the rewards are really immense. So again, thank you for taking the time and I look forward to catching up with you again in the future. Great. It was lovely being here. Thank you.
All right, that wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info at AbundantEdge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform, and I'll catch you on next week's show.